Um, Our passage today is Luke 22, uh, verse 63, through chapter 23, verse 25. And we're going to be continuing our message in Luke. And so if you remember last week, or not last week, last time, we um, looked at the uh, arrest and the betrayal of Jesus. And this week we're looking at the trial of Jesus. Now, um, I'm going to ask for you to stand with me, and if you don't think you can stand for the whole time because it is a big section, feel free to take a break or to remain seated. But I ask you to stand because this is the Word of God, and um, it has the authority and the power to bring salvation into our lives and to transform us into the image of Christ. And so I'm going to start reading in verse 63. Luke writes, Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council, and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was from Galilee, was a Galilean. And when he heard that, that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him, and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate, and Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought this man as one who was misleading the people, And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! A third time he said to them, 
Why, what evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demands should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for sending your son um, to save us from our sins and to go on trial before Herod and the Jews and Pilate and um, to be condemned as guilty um, in order to save us, a guilty people. Um, As we look at the passage this morning, please may our hearts be transformed and refreshed and encouraged by what you have done for us. In your name, Jesus, amen. You may have a seat. So I want to look at uh, three major ironies in this passage. And they contrast the goodness of God and the wickedness of man. And so the first here in your bulletin, it says the true prophet. And this is where our passage begins. It begins with Jesus being brought before the Jews. Um, He's held by the guards, and he's going to go on trial before them. But this trial is, to be an understatement, is uh, the worst trial in all of history. In fact, it's not really much of a trial at all. The judgment had already been made by the Jews before the trial began. And we see this in verses 63 through 65. Um, It says that the soldiers, they were mocking him, beating him, and blaspheming him. The soldiers knew that Jesus was already a condemned man, that the reason he was going through trial was nothing more than mere formality. And their actions, they showed this. They knew that he had a reputation as a prophet, and so they took this and made fun of him for it. They blindfolded him and hit him and said, prophesy, tell us who hit you. They didn't believe that he was really a prophet. They didn't believe that he was the Messiah or the Son of God. They just thought he was a fake. And in verse 66, we're introduced to the priests and the scribes in this passage. And it's important to note that the job of the priests and the scribes was to interpret and teach and judge from the scripture. Um, And so we see this, um, the holders of the scriptures, the ones who are to live by it, they are judging Jesus and they take him to trial, but there's something missing in the trial. They, They don't open up the scriptures, they don't judge by the scriptures. Instead, their whole goal in the trial is to get a confession out of Jesus, and so they beat a confession out of him. The, um, the great irony here is that Jesus is the word of God in the flesh, that the, the Pharisees, the priests, who were supposed to handle the word of God, who were supposed to speak and judge on behalf of God, were not doing as they were supposed to. Otherwise, they would have recognized that this is the very word of God. And when they ask Jesus, tell us if you're the Christ, he answers them by saying, if I tell you, you will not believe. 
And if I ask you, you will not answer. And what Jesus does here is he actually, he prophesies. He, he reveals their hearts to them. He hands it to them, saying, your hearts are hardened. I could tell you, but you won't believe me. And if I ask you, you're not going to answer. And then he continues and he says, but from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And so he continues his prophecy and he reveals not just who they are, but who he is. He reveals himself as the Son of Man and his confidence that in going through this trial and his death, that he will also be resurrected and seated at the power of God. And so the soldiers who had been mocking Jesus as a prophet, they now receive a prophecy from him. But it was not what they expected. And the Pharisees, when they heard Jesus say this about himself, that he was the son of man, they would have known that he was referring to Daniel 7, 13 through 14. And I want to read this passage to you because it, it prompts their next question. So Daniel 7 says, In my vision, at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And so when the Jews heard this, calling himself the son of man, they're like, wait a minute. You're calling yourself the one who goes into the presence of the ancient of days? The one who's been given authority over all of creation, who is sovereign? The one who has a kingdom that will never end? And when they pick up on this, they ask him, are you the son of God then? They know that his claim was deity, but the tragedy is, is that while the Pharisees knew the reference of the scriptures, they did not test it, they did not interpret the scriptures, and they did not judge by the scriptures. And in trusting their own understanding, their understanding that if any human were to call themselves the son of God, that this would be blasphemy. In trusting this, they became part of the greatest evil of all of history, putting the son of God to death. And this is applicable for us. We ourselves as Christians oftentimes go without um, looking to the word of God when we're in trials, when we're trying to understand something. Uh, we can easily go uh, a, a day or two or three or a whole week until next Sunday where we realize, oh man, I haven't even thought about God. I haven't opened up my scriptures. I haven't tested my life and lived by it. Um, and it seems like such a little thing, and we, can, we do it in the little things in the routine of life, but we also do it with big things. We do it when we have to decide where we're going to work or where we're going to go to school or where we're going to live. And um, we need to um, test it with Scripture because God's understanding, His instruction is what guides us and directs us. It's what gives us um, the right actions. But... Um, a lot of times we don't make it our priority at all. We go by without even thinking about God. And we don't even feel bad about it most of the time. We just let God slip our minds. But not submitting to scripture is 
is critical, it's huge. We should interpret and submit to scripture in every aspect of life because this is the very thing that the Pharisees failed to do and put the Son of God to death for. And we are no better when we think that our understanding is good enough, that we think our understanding is better than God's and we don't need to look to his word. We are committing blasphemy when we say and act as if we know better than God. But there's much blasphemy in this um, passage. The Jews were not the only ones to blasphemy him. After the trial with the Jews, and they declared him guilty, they took him to Pilate. And Pilate um, tested him. He asked him, he said, so are you the king of the Jews? And he says, you've said so. And then he's like, all right, I, I see him, he's innocent. But the Jews insisted that he was guilty. They insisted that he was um, causing trouble. And so when Pilate found out he was a Galilean, he said, you know what, let's send him over to Herod. And he really just passes the buck over to Herod. Now, the trial with Herod is one that we can read and easily overlook. We can see it as, okay, he just went and Herod wasn't amused, so whatever. But this is significant because Herod was the illegitimate king of the Jews, and Jesus was the true king of the Jews. Jesus was standing before him on trial as the false king was judging the true king. And so this imagery is powerful. And the trial with Herod is much like the trial with the Sanhedrin, the Jews. There's not much of a trial at all. In fact, Herod's not interested in knowing if Jesus actually is the true king or not. If you jump down to verse 8 of chapter 23, we, it says, When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. Herod's goal, his um, excitement to see Jesus was because he wanted to see a miracle. He wanted to see a magic show. He wanted to be entertained. But Jesus would not be the king's jester, um, and instead he remained silent, and the Jews continued to accuse him. But soon Herod got bored, and he and his soldiers began to treat Jesus with contempt. It says in verse 11 um, that they did this, and then they arrayed him with clothing and sent him back to Pilate. So Herod was not entertained by Jesus. He rejected the true king, and um, he did this because he wasn't getting his excitement. He wasn't getting entertained by him. He wasn't being made happy. But Herod, not getting his entertainment, he took what he did not receive, what Jesus would not give him, and he stole it from him by dressing him up and mocking him as a king. And so Herod, he just saw Jesus as another form of entertainment. He didn't see him as the true king. He didn't see him as the son of God or as a Messiah or savior. Um, he just saw him as a person who was supposed to make him happy, just like everybody else was supposed to make him happy. And the sad thing is, is that there's many Christians today, in fact, probably some of us, who view God in a similar way, um, as being a being 
who just makes us happy. His, his goal is for us to live a good and happy life. And especially in America, we like to live our own lives. We like to do our own thing and make our own plans. Um, and we just kind of expect God to help us out, you know, if we need it. Um, he is there when we feel bad and um, he guides us in which way we should go. But you know, he never really demands anything from us. He certainly would never say, give up everything and follow me. And this idea of God that he exists to make us happy, um, this is an idea that has been termed by um, sociologists and theologians. It's called moralistic therapeutic deism. That's your word for the day, or your phrase. Um, and it's this, it's this very idea, God wants you to be happy, that he guides you morally, that he's there for you therapeutically, um, and that he, other than that, he's just a God who's hands off. Um, but this isn't the God of the Bible. This is a small God that you can put in your pocket and pull out whenever you're feeling bad. It's not a God who is king over your life, it is a God that you control. Now imagine if all of the animals in the jungle, they uh, look to the lion and they're like, you lion, come here, I'm not feeling good. Come make me feel better. No, that's not what the lion does. The lion is the king of the jungle. The other animals fear him. And it's the same way with Christ. Christ is the king of creation. He is all powerful and sovereign. He doesn't exist to do our will or to make us happy. We exist to do his will. The fact that he does guide us and that he does comfort us and that he does make us happy, that is grace that we do not deserve. That should leave us in awe and worship of who God is. And when Herod saw Jesus, the illegitimate king standing before the true king, the only appropriate action that Herod could have took would have been to step off of his throne and to take off his crown and to lay them at the feet of Jesus and say, here, these are yours. You, these belong to you. And in the same way, that's the only appropriate response for us to do. When we're met with the reality of Jesus, we should take off our crowns and step off of the thrones in our hearts and hand our lives over to him because he is the king of creation. Anything less is to reject who Jesus is. It is to not submit to him, to be a, re a rebel. It is to commit blasphemy. And so, I'm sure for all of us, there's areas that we have not fully submitted to Jesus, and I just encourage you to examine yourself in those areas. And also, I suspect that there's perhaps some who have never thought about this idea of submitting their life to Jesus. And if that's you, then, then I encourage you to come talk to Nick or one of the elders or, and have them pray with you. Because Jesus is the king of creation. He created everything. But the Jews and Herod were not the only ones to commit blasphemy. There's also Pilate. So after the trial with Herod, um, Herod sends him back to Pilate. He's dressed up as a king um, from being mocked. And 
Pilate must have enjoyed the, the joke. He thought it was pretty good because after that day, they became friends and they had been enemies before. The two um, false kings had been united over their uh, mockery of Christ. And Pilate's time with Jesus, I think it's pretty interesting because he'd already declared Jesus innocent before he sent him to Herod. He said, look, he's innocent. Um, but he sent him to Herod anyways. And now, after he gets him back, if you look in verse 14, we can read, it says, you brought this man, this is Herod addressing all the people that he's gathered after um, Jesus has been brought back. He says, you brought this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. And so here, a second time, Pilate says, you know, he's innocent, guys. We shouldn't put him to death. But um, there's a tradition, and Luke doesn't mention it here, but Matthew does, and it tells us that there's a tradition at Passover of releasing a prisoner, um, and it's basically the, the people's choice. They're given two people to choose from. Who do you want released? And the people respond to Pilate um, by saying, no, crucify him. We want Barabbas. And Pilate asks in verse 22, he says, why, what evil has he done? I have found no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. And so three times Pilate says, look, Jesus is innocent. We should not put him to death. And then the sad reality is in verse 23 it says, but they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate disregarded the, um, the fact that he knew Jesus was innocent. He was willing to allow Jesus to be sentenced to death because the cries of the people, their voices prevailed over Jesus, or over um, the truth. And Pilate, he represented the whole Roman Empire as a judge at this. Um, and we see clearly he was not a just judge. Instead, he was um, one who was willing to give in to whatever was convenient. He was just seeking peace. And um, if the people were going to cause a riot over this, then he was willing to let injustice happen. Pilate cared about his appearance before the people and comfort rather than being willing to stand up for what he knew was true. And in reality, Pilate was never in control. Although he had the authority to release Jesus, he was not in control. Otherwise, when he'd said that Jesus was innocent the first time, that would have been the end of the story, and we would have a whole different gospel before us. And um, in Pilate's compromise, we can... We can really see our own sin, too. Um, we can be moved by the cries of the world and by inconvenience to cave into and reject what we know is true. 
Um, we have a war within ourselves many times when we're tempted between doing what is right and doing what is convenient. And too often we give in to our desires. We're faced with things such as um, we, could, we could go to church this Sunday, but you know, I really want to go camping. Um, and we'll just go to church next Sunday. Or I could respect my parents, but you know, they really just don't understand me and I don't think that they're going to be able to help, so I'll listen to them later. You know, I could help that guy who's on the corner who is asking for help, but you know, he's not going to change anyways, so why should I help him? I could wait till marriage and I could only love my wife, but you know, nobody really does that anymore. And besides, who's going to know what I do on the internet? The reality is, is that we're faced with temptation and we are good at making excuses. And if our list of good things versus bad things were lined up, <laughs> we would all be very embarrassed. Not that it matters, um, because the punishment for one sin is death. And like Pilate, we do, we give in to sin, and we give in to it way too easily. And here's the great irony in this part, um, Pilate was an unrighteous judge, but there was a righteous judge there with him. Jesus was the righteous judge. Um, in fact, he's judge over the whole world, and one day we will all be accountable to him. And when we see the scene of Jesus and Pilate standing up there, um, we have to ask the question, who was on trial? Was it Jesus or was it the world? And I believe the answer is yes. And both trials seem to be backwards because in the trial of Jesus, the guilty or the innocent is declared to be guilty. But in the trial of the world, the guilty are declared to be innocent. And we see this actually even in the trial of Jesus. We see Barabbas was declared innocent. If you look at verse 25, it says, um, actually, I'm sorry, I don't have it right here. Um, but if you look at verse 25, it says that he was an insurrectionist and a murderer, that he was known to be guilty, and yet he was released because Jesus was condemned. And what Barabbas was guilty of was the very same thing that the Jews were accusing Jesus of back in verse 2 to Pilate, an insurrectionist, one who was uh, trying to rebel against the kingdom. And so the known rebel, the known murderer, goes free while the innocent Jesus is held captive and sent to death. And the name of Barabbas um, is significant. It means son of the father. So Barabbas was literally the fake son of God, the illegitimate son and it's the illegitimate son who is given life instead of the true son of God. The illegitimate son was received and considered to be innocent, and the true son of God was rejected and sentenced to death. And in the end of the trial, we literally see Jesus standing where Barabbas should have stood. And at the cross, we see Jesus hanging 
where Barabbas should have hung. Jesus took the judgment, the punishment that Barabbas deserved. And what's amazing is that in the same way as Barabbas was declared innocent because Jesus was declared guilty, (laughs) we are declared innocent because Jesus was declared guilty. The same way that Jesus took the place of Barabbas, Jesus took our place. We are the ones who should have been declared guilty. We are the insurrectionists who have rebelled against the kingdom of God. We are the murderers who have put the Son of God to death. But Jesus received the judgment that we deserve. And this, this was Jesus' plan all along. Um, this was the plan of God from eternity past. And we see in the prophet Isaiah um, in chapter 53, verses 7 through 11, um, the, the backstory, the heavenly uh, plan of what is unfolding. And I'd like to read it to you. It says in verse 7, Isaiah 53, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He was put to grief. Uh, he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of God shall prosper in his land. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. And this is exactly what happened. Um, Jesus was punished. Jesus what did suffer. And he did bear our iniquities so that we would be accounted as righteous. And this is the work of Jesus. This is what he did. This is why he came and lived. This is why the word became flesh was so that we could stand righteous before God through his sacrifice. And this is the gospel. And we should always remember it. And actually, this is why we've been given the practice of communion. It's to remind us of what Jesus has done. And it, I just want to encourage you, as you take communion this morning, as Nick leads it, um, take it with encouragement. Take it with confidence that as sure as Jesus died and rose again, you also <laughs> will rise with him. You will be with him in eternity. This isn't a promise of what you're going to do. This is a promise of what he has already done. And it's, it's a grace. It's a great benefit for us as believers to take communion. Um, Jesus died the death that you deserve, and he gave you his righteousness. And if you believe that, then, then this 
act of communion is a sign and it's a seal for you um, that he will hold you through the day of judgment and um, that you will spend eternity with him. So I'd like to pray now and then we'll continue in worship. Lord, we are so evil and we do not deserve the grace that you have given us. But you are so good, God. And we do not deserve that you came and took our place for us. You are the true king and the true judge and the true prophet, Lord. Jesus, you are God. And may we submit to you. May we recognize and worship you for who you are. And as you continue to lavish love and grace and on us and provide us with things, Lord, may we just be in awe of how good you are, giving us much more than we deserve, giving us life and the promise of eternity with you. And I pray for the Christians that we would be encouraged in this truth. And I pray for those who have not yet come to believe, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would move in them that they would realize the reality of your son and the sacrifice that he paid, that the cost of their punishment has already been taken. And I pray that they would just receive that by believing in you, Lord. In your name, Jesus, amen.